0: If you would, please open up to John chapter 5. John chapter (coughs) 5. Get me in verses 1 through basically 16. I might go to 19. We'll see. John chapter 5. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades. Um, verse 3 in these lay a multitude of invalids blind lame and paralyzed one man uh, there was who had been invalid for 38 years and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time he said to him do you want to be healed and the sick man answered him sir I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me and Jesus said to him get up Take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Verse 12. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My father is working till now, and I am working and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling his own, uh, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. lot there that keeps on connecting, keeps on going through a couple more chapters. It's interesting, in the first four chapters of John, um, the apostle is focusing on establishing uh, who Jesus is. He's convincing us of who Jesus is, that he is the eternal Son of God who dwelled with the Father from all eternity, was manifested in the world as the light of men, in whom uh, Jesus possesses life, eternal life. It doesn't come from the outside of him. He alone possesses life. He is God. And his life is like light to mankind who are spiritually dead, every single one of us, who are alienated from God and under the wrath of God, awaiting judgment because of our sin. Very gloomy situation for us. And that's why the Bible uses these terms, light and darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world. That's not to say he just shows you a better way. He is the way. He possesses what we need. He is life. And John is funneling everything. He show, he, the reason why he's sharing all these interactions and these miracles and everything he's going through is to point the readers to the fact that Jesus is the light. The people who afterwards who would not be able to actually see Jesus walk on the earth. The ones who would have to read about them. Gentiles far off 2,000 years later in Walla Walla. Amen? And so John introduces us to Jesus, that promised Savior, the Son of God. Whom the Father sent into the world deliberately so that whoever believes upon him would have eternal life. And that means whoever believes upon him would be saved from the wrath of God. I think that is so important. We leave that out often. Hey, Jesus is going to save you from your debt. No. Jesus is going to save you from, you know, all this this stuff. It's like, well, maybe that's going to be a byproduct of the work he does in your life. But the thing that Jesus came to save us from is eternal separation from God, from the wrath of God. We have a debt that we could never pay to God. And when we minimize that, we minimize the absolute price that was paid to buy us back. And so we want to magnify the Lord and call it like it is. And so God sent his son because of his love to save us from wrath. So John puts an emphasis upon Jesus and the fact that God is calling mankind to turn from our sin and to believe upon Jesus. And by the way, that's a that's a verse that, that's a word that's repeated a lot in the first four chapters. Actually, in John, a lot. It's belief, and that's what the focus is: believing upon Jesus. To believe upon Jesus means that you believe that He died in your place to take the the punishment of the wrath of God upon. That was due you, right? That he substitutionally sacrificed himself on your behalf. That's, that's important. So Jesus died for our sins, but not only did he die, we believe that he rose again. Amen? He rose again, proving that he's the son of God. Proving that he's the son of God. Proving that, God, proving that he has life, that he has been uh that he has eternal life proving that he will also raise you up again and so those things the, the the gospel the death and the resurrection of jesus christ and so john spends those first four chapters making the case for us to believe that jesus is who he says he is that he is god in the flesh and so john makes that case by first recording how the disciples believed and, he, and they run into jesus and and they're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, and they go tell other other would be disciples, and then Peter, you know, is convinced, and all these other people become convinced, and that's John's thinking there. And then we see how Jesus runs into Nicodemus, the very religious man. That Jesus came to save religious people. Did you know that? We think our oh, religious people are good. No, religious people are the ones that are often hardest to reach because they think that they're saved, especially um, Bible cultured people people who have been raised in the church but who do not believe in jesus christ as their savior who believe that because they were in an environment that they're saved or because they've done a bunch of things that they're saved no it's through a person jesus came to the jews who were celebrating all these religious rituals as their messiah and they rejected him right but some believed Nicodemus was one of those who actually, I believe, did believe. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's like, man, I am at the top of my game. I'm the Pharisee. I've been to Pharisee school. Like, I've, I've done it. I'm at the top. I'm actually in the top of politics. I'm, I am the guy that people go to to get answers about God. And he comes to Jesus' night, and Jesus says, listen, everything that you've learned has to be undone. You must be born again. An idiom for you need my spiritual life in you. You can't receive spiritual life by doing a bunch of religious ritual stuff. It doesn't happen that way. There's only two religions in the world the one by works or the one by grace. And so Jesus moves on, and you see in John chapter 4, a woman at the well. You go from the moral Jew to the immoral Samaritan. This woman had five husbands. And she was kind of justifying everything she was doing and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus comes to her and, says, and uses a different idiom. So he, said, he says to her, you need living water. Unless you have this living water, you are going to thirst again. And, and that related to the well of the relationship she kept going to. Her sinfulness would never satisfy her. And Jesus had the living water that this woman needed. He was willing to give it to her. He said, I'll give it to you if you ask. But she thought it was just normal water. So Jesus had to wake her up to the fact that it was a spiritual thirst that she had. And she finally, I believe, came to faith at the end of that story. And her testimony moved to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, although she was a Samaritan, they all believed and declared that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And this is what John is getting at in the first four chapters. And then we end chapter four with the official whose, whose son Uh, was healed by jesus jesus moved him from wanting miracles because all the crowds started to hear that jesus was this miracle worker they started to move him away from just believing in signs and wonders for the sake of signs and wonders to believing what jesus said they believed his word and that's going to be a pattern over and over and over and and so jesus um, brought this man to faith and so john he and his whole family by the way and so john's been making this point That Jesus is the Savior of the world. That mankind must turn. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's not something we can drum up in a person. That's something that the the Holy Spirit has been sent into the world to convict us of our sin, to convince us of it, first of all. Right? To convict us of our sin and and of righteousness, the righteousness of God and the judgment to come. And when when that weight comes down upon a human being, it's to drive us, not into the dirt, but to the Savior. Amen? And then... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, mourning over our sin. And then you become meek. And there's all these other things that follow after that. But chapter 5 through 7 shifts. John shifts us. He actually starts to do it at the end of chapter 4 a little bit. But it shifts from those who believe in Jesus to those who reject Jesus and why. Chapters 5 and 7, not 6, but 5 and 7, they deal with with the opposition that jesus had in in judea that southern region where jerusalem was chapter six deals with the rejection of jesus in the north and so we're going to kind of go through that but basically the nation begins to turn (laughs) against jesus slowly but surely starting with the political leaders who start a pr campaign against jesus start spreading lies and then that spreads into the people obviously And so it all begins here in chapter 5 with Jesus healing a paralytic on the Sabbath. Interestingly enough, it says in verse 1 of chapter 5 where we pick up today, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So again, John's taking us back to Jerusalem in the south. He's skipping a whole lot of what just happened. Remember, we were at a feast. And then Jesus went up into the north, and we kind of just got a couple things, and then he takes us right back down to a feast. Well, a lot of ministries happened between now and then. The other gospels say that Jesus was rejected at Nazareth. He is preaching all over the place. He's healing. He's casting out demons in the north. He's healing lepers. He's healing a paralytic that, got, that lowered from the ceiling. All those things are happening between uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, okay? So just to let you know, there's a lot going on. But that's not John's main point. So John's leaving a bunch out because he has a different focus. But what we do need to know is that large crowds are gathering around Jesus from all over the place. From far away, from close, they're all hearing about Jesus. People are starting to hear about him. They're starting to flock to him. But as Jesus pointed out at the end of chapter 4, it was mainly to see signs. It was mainly to see wonders. It was mainly to get physical healing, hoping that he would be a military savior, all these types of things. Not so much believing what he said, but enjoying what he does and the benefits of those things. And so they won't believe upon Jesus and they won't—they want the physical benefits that flow from his benevolence. And so John's taking us back to this feast in the south. John doesn't say which one, but you know that there were three and the Jews had to observe them. So verse 2 says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic it's called Bethesda. Some of you know um, that the Walter Reed Medical Center is also called Bethesda back east, where it deals with people who have been maimed by war. That's where they got this name from, the idea. And it says that this place, this pool, has five root colonnades. And in these last, uh, in these lay multitudes of invalids. That is the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And so this pool in, in, in Jerusalem is called Bethesda, which can be translated house of mercy or flowing water, kind of synonymous there. It was by the sheep gate, and they would have known that because that's where you bring in the sheep for the sacrifices. So I'm sure it smelled great. And look good thing there's a pool there. Um, but John describes it as having five colonnades, and archaeologists talk about it, how there's a lot of shade in this area. And so what would happen around this pool, there were many people who would gather who were lame and blind, and they would gather around this pool under the colonnades in the shade. And it says in verse 5 that, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. How many of you have had physical stuff going on? 38 years is a long time to suffer. It is a long time to suffer. One man was there for 38 years. I can't even imagine that. Basically being physically immobilized. Verse 6. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there, And knew that he had already been there a long time. So Jesus knows. He said to him, do you want to be healed? What an interesting question for Jesus to ask, don't you think? Don't you presuppose, like you just walk up to someone, man, this guy obviously wants to be healed. He asked this guy who's been totally immobile for 38 years, do you want to be healed? You know, this is the first passage that the Lord gave me when I started teaching uh, morning men's bible study at the at the christian aid center and uh, as i was studying for it, the lord just showed me a lot right off the bat um, many many people who are invalid and physically and emotionally have issues they can come to a place that offers help and they can gather together in 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 that situation but often nothing changes you ever notice that I think Jesus' question is telling. He asked the guy who's been there for 38 years, he asked him, hey, do you actually want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That's a great question, pretty revealing. Sometimes people uh, don't want to be healed. They're quite comfortable staying where they are, and I've struggled with that after a while. But, but this man's answers revealed what his faith was in, and that's really important. Jesus asked this question, and, it, and his answer tells us what this guy was trusting in. What do you trust in? Where is your trust? Very interesting. Verse 7, he says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and when I'm going, another steps down before me. Now some of your translations, uh, I just want to get into this for a second, how many of your translations actually read out verse 4? How many of you have a verse 4 in your Bible that says something? Alright, you can leave now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> My wife raised her hand. (laughs) So basically, and how many of yours do not? Right, yeah, exactly. So what happened is the earlier manuscripts, uh, they they don't have verse 4 in it. They don't have a verse 4. So we've got 25,000 New Testament manuscripts, and more of them have been found as the years have gone by. And so when the other manuscripts, like the, my guess is you've got something, along the lines of King James or New King James or one of those translations. Yep. Okay, yeah. So those those kind of had a certain amount of information when they were written. Well, as you kind of dig up more manuscripts and you find all these things, they see that as you're looking at at this, that, that a majority of those manuscripts, do the earlier manuscripts, the more reliable manuscripts they say, don't have verse 4. So what they do is they say, they either put it in there and they let you know that there's that it's probably not in the original text or they put a little uh, they have a little and you've got to go read the verse at the bottom either way they put it in there they just they just say it's either one way or the other same with the end of mark same with the issue of the woman uh who was caught in adultery and the guys with the stones that whole section um all that kind of stuff so there's these issues so what what most likely happened is you're trying to explain verse seven the guy says hey if you're just reading the manuscript, it says you want to get in the pool because when the water stirred, I, it, it, there's like there's an information gap there. If you're reading without verse four, it doesn't explain what verse seven means. Correct. So what happened is a scribe understands the culture and what situations going on, what myth was going on, and he put, probably put in there, hey, this is what they were thinking in verse four. So it makes sense that there was an angel stirring the water, and whenever the angel stirred the water, they would get into the pool and think they'd be healed. And so they go ahead and they take that license, and somehow they got moved over into the later manuscripts. And so apparently there was some kind of superstition among the people at the time that when the water was stirred up, it was the angel of the Lord, and whoever got the water first was healed. And so Jesus asked the sick man, do you want to be healed in verse in, in verse 7, and he says, I can't get into the water. So now that makes sense. I can't get into the water. 38 years of not being able to get into the water first, apparently. Nobody's helping me. I can't get into the water. The water is what is going to make me whole. Interesting. So Jesus, he's having compassion on the man, even with his misplaced faith, trusting in the water. Trusting in this stirring of the pool. Trusting in this myth, whatever it might be. And what happens? Jesus supernaturally overrides all that and says in verse 8, get up, take your bed, and walk. Don't you love that? I love Jesus gives him three, man, three commands. He says, get up, take your bed, and walk. Now, do you see what Jesus did here? It's, it's interesting. He, he took the man's faith from hoping in a pool and where did he place it? And what he said you see that? he's either going to continue to trust in the pool and someone's not able to help him in Jesus didn't say hey I'll help you into the pool Jesus looked at him and said get up take your bed and walk and the Lord divinely healed him and at once when Jesus said that the man had a choice what was his choice? You either obey the voice of the Lord or you stay where you are. And that's what Jesus did. You see the pattern that's happening over and over in John? He's taking people from all these things, these miracles and signs and wonders, which are wonderful and awesome, but they're all to point us to the person of Jesus Christ, right? And when he speaks, it happens because he's God of the universe. And he spoke he said, get up, take your bed and walk. And, and that man had a choice at that point to either get up or to stay put. I, I think quite often God has spoken to many of you and said, get up. And we're going, yeah, but no one's helped me in the pool. And we got that situation going on. You know, hey, I'm stuck in this situation. Jesus is like, get out. Or Jesus is saying, go. Jesus is saying, get up, move. Obey me in this. Yeah, but you don't understand. I'm stuck by this pool. Like I'm waiting for someone to get me in the water. It's just this, all right, have fun at the pool. And the man, he had a choice to take Jesus at his word. And verse 9 happens. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Amen? I love that. But there's a catch. John tells us, verse 9. Oh, man. Now that was the Sabbath. The day that Jesus is on the Sabbath. And this is John's point. It's not the healing. Isn't that weird? We kind of focus on the healing. But John tells this story out of all the stories to tell you that Jesus is going to get in trouble with people because Jesus was doing this stuff all over the place. And so he takes one example. He says this happened on the Sabbath. And this is the significance of the story. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, what in the world's going on here? We're going to get more into the Sabbath next week, but keeping the Sabbath holy is, is, you know, is the seventh commandment for the Jews, right? Given to the Hebrews by God through Moses. And the purpose of the Sabbath was for the Israelites to cease their normal work that they did six days a week, right? And to focus on the worship of God and to rest from their labor. And God set the pattern in creation. Six days, he created the world. On the seventh day, he rested. And that was the model. And so the problem was that the religious leaders, the rabbis and all of them, did not understand the purpose of the Sabbath, or they did at one time and they started to um, add to it and to change it and redefine it. They thought that that it was a means of righteousness before God, that by keeping the Sabbath, they would attain a right standing before God. Now, obviously, if you didn't keep the Sabbath, you were in trouble as a Jew. You were going to suffer severely. But they, they perverted the intention of the Sabbath. Instead of the Sabbath being created for man, instead of the Sabbath being created for man, they turned it around and made it as if man was created for the Sabbath. They made the blessing that was given by God to be an actual curse to the Jews. Very interesting. And so they began to further define what God meant by work. And this happens in your environment. Uh, anybody have this situation at work? Like, there's a general rule, and everybody, like, someone goes, well, what does that mean? And then they start getting further and further and further defined until you have such... The legal department's got, like, pages and pages and pages defining what work is and what work isn't. That's what went on with all the rabbis. And so... Instead of it saying, hey, you get a day off to worship God and to and to stop your labors, you need to not work, you need to rest, you need to worship God. Instead of that being the heart of it, what they did is they took it, the, the rabbis took it, and they defined out 39 categories of work. And uh, let me tell you, it's astounding. It's astounding. To this day, it's astounding for the Orthodox Jew. I was in Israel, and... Uh, you know, in 2001 or whatever it was, and uh, I was trying to get on an elevator, and I could not get on this elevator. I kept pushing the button, it wouldn't go because it was the Sabbath. I didn't realize it, but the Sabbath, and what they do is they set the elevator to just open it every floor. I made the mistake of getting in one of those elevators. I'm like, I kept pushing the button here. I'm a Gentile pushing the button because you cannot work on the Sabbath, and if you push that button, What happens is you're connecting an electrical spark and that's equivalent with making a fire, which is against the Sabbath law. Don't do that. And so I got to get into the Gentile elevator and just go where I need to go. Right. And so to that state. So so what was going on is there were all these categories of not working. One of them twisted out of Nehemiah 13 and Jeremiah 17 um, that spoke about not carrying a load, not carrying a load on the Sabbath. Now, that was given because if you carried a load for work, you needed to not carry a load on the Sabbath. You needed to rest from your labor. But they took this uh, uh, to mean to carry anything ever all the time. They don't carry anything ever all the time. You just have to be... I don't know what you're doing. You're floating in space or something on the Sabbath. And so the Jews there in Jerusalem see this guy carrying his mat. They don't understand. Maybe they saw him get healed. Maybe they didn't. My guess is that these guys didn't. And they see this guy and they say, hey, it's the Sabbath. What are you doing carrying your mat around? What are you doing? Great bunch of guys. Verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. This guy is feeling the heat of the law. This guy instantly is feeling the condemnation of the law for breaking the law on the Sabbath. He's going, whoa, imagine 38 years. You're now able to walk. It's like, that's a whole new experience. He gets his mat and he's walking with it just like Jesus said. And then all of a sudden, someone walks up and says, what are you doing? You're breaking the law. And the guy, he says, well, it's not my fault. It's the guy who told me to do it he instantly throws Jesus under the bus. I love what uh, Leon Morris Riley wrote. He says, this man was not the stuff of which heroes are made. Uh, Verse 12, it says, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They want to know who's the one who commanded you to break the law. And you can see they just bypassed the big news that happened. What was the big news? The guy got healed. Do they care whether he got healed or not? What do they care about? He broke the law. It's, I know it. They had no concern that this guy was healed. They didn't ask him how long he'd been sick. They didn't rejoice with him and say, awesome, this is great. We'll take care of that later. But they just cringed that their man-made version of the Sabbath was broken. And they wanted to know who it was that would order him to do such a thing. Verse 13 says, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. Pretty interesting Jesus heals the guy and he and Jesus moves away and withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place and verse 14 says afterward notice what happens Jesus goes and finds him I love that about the Lord guys an incomplete knowledge of, of the Lord and so he wants to go back and and go talk to him he found him in the temple and said to him see you are well awesome he's rejoicing sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you Wow, the man didn't know that it was Jesus, but Jesus sought him out. And Jesus warns the man. and What does he say to him? Do not sin unless something worse happens to you. It doesn't say why the man became sick. We know that, right? But apparently it was because of his sin. That's why this man was sick. Jesus says, don't sin anymore because something worse is going to happen to you. Right, That is why the man was in the condition he was. And I think that's important to know. Later in chapter 9, it's important to note as well, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And Jesus' disciples were asking him, Hey, who caused this man's sickness? Was it him? Was it his sin? Or was it his parents' sins that he was born blind? And Jesus responds and says... It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. And so let me just say that the reason why people are sick, why Christians are sick, so to speak, is not always because of sin. It's not always because of sin. There are many who teach that the reason you're sick or have a disease is because of personal sin or you lack faith and all that kind of stuff. That is not true. That is not always true. But guess what? Sometimes it is. And we can't neglect that either. Amen? For those Jews under the law of Moses, I'm going to give you some examples here. Moses warned them in Deuteronomy 28, 58 through 61. Where he said to them, If you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you uh, against all the diseases of Egypt, again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you, and every sickness also, and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law. (laughs) He just wants to clarify. This is like legal here. You're going to get everything. Uh, Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. And so to be a Jew under the law in the Old Testament was a pretty scary deal. Like if you depart from the Lord and his law, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to get sick. And as a nation, things are, bad things are going to happen to you. David experienced this personally and wrote about it in Psalm 32, 3-4, through four, after committing adultery at Bathsheba. He wrote... Uh, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so those are two Old Old Testament examples of God's... God's, um, God's judgment upon His people for abandoning Him. But just in case we think the church gets a pass, and this is the the part where you go, yay! Paul, when speaking to the Corinthians in Corinth about taking communion in an unworthy manner, says in 1 Corinthians 11.30, he says, because you're taking communion in an unworthy manner, because you aren't considering one one another, because you're suing each other, because of all these things that are going on in the church, because you think that you're right with each other, you're ignoring that you're right with each other, because you think you're right with God and you're actually not, all these types of things. It says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Isn't that wild? You see, in other words, there was in unrepentant sin and people were taking communion as if everything was good. I probably should have read this before we had communion, right? Um, But seriously, uh, they were thinking, hey, you know, I can just let this stuff slide. Well, God knows. And God started to judge the church and Paul was saying, listen, this is why the Lord's even taken some of you home. This is why some of you have died. Because there's this unrepentant sin in your life, and so if you don't judge yourselves, God's going to judge you. That was the, that was the point. And so Jesus. Uh, oh, and by the way, you know I didn't I didn't write this down, but I was thinking about it. And Paul says, "Hey, if is anyone sick among you, is anyone hurting, like come come to the elders so that they can pray for you, confess your sin to the Lord, confess your faults before one another, and be healed." And the idea is that you get some discerning people around you. And they start praying for you over your sickness and they start delving into what's going on to discern whether or not it is an actual spiritual matter in your life or whether it's an affliction caused by sin or not. And you pray. As you pray, there's the discernment that the Lord would give the elders or or spiritual group of people in your life. And then they'd be able to say, hey, you know what? It could be that the Lord is trying to get your attention in this and this area. Wake up and address it and (coughs) see what happens. So Jesus tells the man, see your well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Can any of you imagine something worse than not being able to function for 38 years? So what do you think Jesus is talking about? What could be worse than that? Eternal hell. hell. He's talking to him about be careful. Don't continue in sin because guess what's going to happen? Something worse may happen to you, and that something worse is that you come under the judgment of God and you spend eternity apart from Him. You see, there's physical healing, yea, but what people need is they need to be saved from true consequence. And so, I believe Jesus is referring to that there. And so, what does the man do in response to what Jesus says? He's healed in a mighty ways, blessed by God. Verse 38. I'm sorry, uh, verse 15. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed them. Wow. Total betrayal. Jesus seeks him out. He finds him. He had healed him. He had given him just a new lot in life, all that type of stuff. And he just uses those opportunities to go ahead and betray Jesus. And verse 16 says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Interesting. The betrayal by the healed towards the healer, and now the persecution of the Jews against Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to delve into the uh, deity of Jesus Christ next week. And we're going to delve into the Sabbath more next week. I had to kind of find a place to break, but I just want to read those last verses here. Um, <clears throat> verse uh, uh, verse 17, it's, well, verse 16 says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, verse 17, my father is what until now? Working until now. And I am what? Working Very interesting. Listen, God isn't subject to the Sabbath. We'll get into that next week. But this was why the Jews were seeking all the more, not just to persecute him, but to what? Kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John says the eternal God became flesh and man took God's law, twisted it against God himself to justify themselves killing him. That's how dark our darkness is. Isn't that wild? Isn't that twisted? And Jesus came to save us out of that. I had to do a hard break there because this next section is really connected and it goes on for a while and so I wanted to it's kind of an awkward place to break but let's stop there for today and we'll get in there next week Father we love you and we ask that we would love you not only with our lips Lord but with our lives we pray Lord that we would be uh, those who would respond to your grace and that we would come and seek you out and fall at your feet and say thank you for healing us blind and deaf leopards and that we would just um, bless you that we would seek you and follow you and go wherever you send us Lord that we would be your messengers Lord and we would glorify your name by our lives and our words and our actions and that your spirit would grace us and fill us and empower us Lord to do so and Lord may we never um, be those people who just take the grace that you've given us and, and just throw you under the bus, God. We, have a, we, have, we each have that potential in our life, and our heart, Lord. I pray that we would trust you this week more than we ever have. We would follow you wholeheartedly and that we would experience your joy, even in the midst of persecution, Lord. And so we just thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. We pray for next week. Lord, uh, or this coming week, that we would be salt and light in the world that you've placed us in. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen.